Awesome. Well, it was 2008. Uh, I think I was 26 years old, and I was massively struggling to figure out what God was doing. I, feel like, I felt like God had given me two major passions in my life. The first one was this growing sense that God was calling me toward church leadership and even planting new churches. But two years previously, we'd been invited to head up this church planting team, and we'd seen some people come to know Jesus. And then from way above us, for political reasons, the church plant had been shut down because it was deemed to be in the wrong neighborhood. And then I, I, the other thing I was really passionate about was I was really passionate about starting businesses and seeing them grow and flourish. And I'd had the opportunity to start a couple of different businesses, but it was 2008, if you remember what that was like, twitch in the eye, a global financial crisis. The car industry that I was working was in major freefall. People were losing their jobs everywhere, and the company I was running was really struggling. My livelihood, the livelihood of all the people who were employed in the business was at threat. And I was stressed, right? I was anxious. When I got home in the evenings, I would go and walk around the field. Like Part of me was like, God, I thought you called me to be a church planner, but now I'm in a big church, and I don't really have a place. I don't seem to fit here. And I was like going about the business, like, Lord, I thought you called me into this industry to be a kingdom builder, to be a transformer of culture, and yet our business is going down the drain. God, are you real? Do you exist? Do you actually have good plans? Maybe as I, I share that story, maybe you have a, a story like that as well. Maybe you've had times in your life, maybe even as you come to church this morning, you're like, yeah, that's, that's me. Like, there have been these moments when I've been like, hey, God, you, you, you should do what I am telling you to do because this is how it's supposed to go. And yet God seems not to listen, seems not to respond. Well, another person who felt like that was a guy called John the Baptist in the Bible. He was uh, related to Jesus he was a celebrity pastor and prophet and preacher. People would come from all over a huge area to hear him speak. I feel like if he'd been in LA today, he would have been celebrity pastors like in every sense, like, except for his everything. But, but here would have been like hashtag preachers and, probably not sneakers, hashtag preachers and sandals or hashtag preachers and sackcloth. But, but he was a guy who people respected. They would come and hear him. He would proclaim boldly and truthfully the coming of God's kingdom. Huge crowds would come and be baptized by him. Even Jesus was baptized by John. He was courageous. He was bold. He spoke truth to power, even to royal families. And it was ultimately that that got him cast into prison when he called out King Herod's illegitimate marriage to his brother's wife. And that landed him rotting into a jail cell. And where we pick him up today, he is not <laughs> preachers and sandals. He's rotting in a jail cell, disillusioned, discouraged, broken, not sure what's going to happen next. And we're going to pick up the story as we go back into our series through the book of Luke in Luke 7, 18 through 35. Luke 7, 18 through 35, and if you've got your Bibles, it'd be great to have that open in front of you. Uh, if you don't have that open, then um, it's going to come up on the screens, and Lisa's going to come and read it for us. John's disciples told him about all these things, 
Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what, did you, but what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Awesome. Thank you. So John's in jail, but his disciples are out following, watching, listening to Jesus. But the news that John is receiving back from his disciples is not causing him joy. It's not making him happy. It's not making him like bang on the jail cell. Actually, he's disappointed. He's stressed. He's anxious, and he's worried about it. Why? It's because what Jesus is doing does not seem to match up with the very things that John thought the Messiah was going to bring. Now, we know what John thought the Messiah was going to bring in Luke chapter 3 when John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Now, John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. John knew that the kingdom was about to come. But in John's mind, what he saw was wrath. What he saw was repentance. What he saw was hellfire and brimstone and this sweeping transformation of the kingdom which was about to break in. In John's mind, this was like a violent eruption, revolution that was going to transform the world. He saw Jesus maybe as like a military conqueror. I can see John, if he'd been around maybe 50 or 100 years ago from now, sitting in his jail cell waiting from the telegram from Jesus, which would have no doubt read something like this. John, stop. On my way with huge army, stop. Be there at noon, stop. Stand away from wall, stop. Cover ears, stop. Freedom! Signed, Jesus. 
That's what John thought was going to happen in the new kingdom. But actually, as he hears the stories of Jesus, it's something totally different. It leaves him depressed and disappointed because in his mind, he's like, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, this isn't harsh enough. This isn't strong enough. This isn't vocal enough. This isn't transformative enough. Like, I thought you were going to be like this, Jesus, and actually, you seem to be like this. And as maybe John looks out of the world, he still sees all the things that have caused him grief for so long. Problems in the Jewish world, injustice in the Roman world, scandal, immorality, brokenness, and sin all around him. And he's like, Jesus, I thought you were going to wipe all this stuff away. Why isn't it happening? I wonder if you ever feel like that. I wonder if you ever feel like that. There's times in your life when you're like, God, I know what the right answer is. I know what you're supposed to do. Like, it's really obvious, like me, when I was pacing the field. But yet, God, you just don't seem to be listening to me. God, if, if you're real, like, why didn't you answer when we prayed really hard for that person? You know, we prayed for them to be healed. We fasted. We even shabba-dabba-dood and did everything we could think of whatever that is, <laughs> and yet you didn't do anything. Or like, God, if you're real and you really care about me, why is it that I still struggle with that thing deep inside of my life? God, if you're real, why do Christians over there behave like that? Why is there injustice? Why is there sin? Why is there brokenness? God, are you really there? And it leads us to doubt, doesn't it? To think, well, God, maybe, maybe if you are there, maybe you're not good. I mean, maybe you're not powerful. Maybe you're not loving. And if you are those things, then maybe it's me. Maybe there's something wrong with me that you just don't like me. And before long, we get into that spiral of disappointment and anxiety and doubt. But you know, I love the honesty and I love the authenticity of John, this celebrity preacher, this celebrity prophet, the person who Jesus says is the greatest of all men, doesn't need to fake it. He doesn't need to pretend. And Jesus is not shocked by what he has to say. You see, when Jesus hears these words from John's disciples, they go like this. Hey, Jesus, are you actually the one? Like, are you actually the one who I prophesied about? Are you the one who the scriptures point to, or did I get it wrong? Did I mess it up? Is there somebody else that's coming yet? Are we not quite there yet? I wonder, is that how we deal with disappointment? Is that how we deal with doubt? Or do we do what seems to be always true in churches, we're like, hush it up. Like, how are you doing, brother? I'm fine. <laughs> oh, you're not fine? Shh, keep it, keep it to yourself. Or, or we, we put on a big smile, like, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good. When inwardly in our heart, we're racked with guilt and fear. Or we say to people like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, you're not doing okay. Have more faith. Confess victory, brother. That'll do it. Just put the big smile on, name it, claim it, quote some Bible verses. <laughs> some of your favorite ones, you know those ones. Just pick those ones. They will fix all your problems. But the problem is, 
deep down we know that it's actually just crushingly inauthentic to do that. To follow Jesus is not faking it until you make it. Actually, that's just exhausting if you've ever tried it. It's not coming into church and saying, hey, I'm fine. And we look at you, you're not, you're not fine. Your leg just fell off. No, no, I'm absolutely fine. Your other leg just fell off. No, no, I'm absolutely fine. Your arms just fell off. No, I'm absolutely fine. I'm blessed in the Lord. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, I want to say this to you. Vintage is not a place where you need to come and pretend everything is okay. In fact, it would be much better if we didn't do that. Be yourself. Because if we can't be ourselves, then we cannot embrace the fullness of the Christian story. It causes us just to want to run out on church or just sing the kind of songs that we can deal with and ignore the rest. I tell you this, guys. Jesus never asks you to fake it. He never asks you to fake it. Do you know why? Because he never faked it. When his best friend, this guy called Lazarus, dies, what does Jesus do? He weeps and he cries. When Jesus is just coming up to the cross, he's about to be crucified, what do we see him doing? Is he like there going, hey, don't worry, everybody, this is going to be great. We've got a victory here. This is going to just watch this. No, like he is so racked. He is so anxious. He is so full of fear that he's literally sweating blood which is a medical condition when you see a massive trauma. When Jesus is on the cross, does it say, hey, like, don't worry, everyone, we got this sorted. You wait three days, this is going to be absolutely fantastic. Just hold on, what's this? No. What does Jesus say? God, where have you gone? What are you doing? Why have you left me? Jesus does not fake it. And he does not hide his complaints. Rather, he takes them to God. And I wonder if we need to be a little braver to take our complaints to the Lord too. But what's going on, right? I mean, what's going on in this John story? Something's going on. And the message is really this, is that Jesus often is working, always is working, but often it's in radically different ways to what we think or expect See, like John, he's he's way up for the massive military solution, the revolution, the bang, the heads together. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say to John, hey, hey, oh, so sorry, man, yeah. It's just early in the day. I haven't quite got going yet. Just give us a couple more days. The revolution's coming. (laughs) It's not what he says. What he does is he quotes Isaiah 35, which John would have known really well, which says this. Go back, report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See, what Jesus is saying to John is, hey man, this is what you need to know. I am doing it. It is coming. It is here. I am working, but it does not look like what you had in your head. It does not look like your preconceived ideas, the order's difference, the timing's difference, but it is real, it is coming. You thought empire, power, and actually what's happening is this. The poor are being healed. The dead are being raised. The coming kingdom is being proclaimed. And what I find astonishing is he doesn't even give John the why. It's always a lot, would be a lot easier if he said, oh, and John, don't worry, because this is what's going to happen, and it's going to look like that, and you just hold on, you know, it's going to work out okay. He doesn't even say that. 
Have you ever experienced God not giving you the why? Boy, have I. You know, I think if I had been pacing around those fields when I was 26 years old and God had said, hey, Ben, don't worry. It's okay. By the time you're 40, you'll still have no hair, but you'll be in Los Angeles and you'll be pastoring this incredible church full of people and you know those businesses, they'll have done absolutely fine. Everything will have worked out. Like that would have helped a lot, actually. But God doesn't give the why sometimes. He doesn't say to John, it's going to be okay. What he just says is this, trust me, believe in me, watch me. You know, I think part of the problem is, isn't it, is that we all have a very clear picture of who God is and what God should do for us. In fact, I think what we, we generally do, and, and we've seen it so many times, particularly in this last couple of years when we've been faced with the massive trauma of a global pandemic, is that we create a box for God, a nice, neat box, and we try and put God into the box, right? You know, we say, oh, well, God is like that, and God is about that group of people. God does love them, but he doesn't love them. No, God has that view of COVID. He doesn't have that view of COVID. God loves that denomination of people or that race of people or that political party, but God doesn't love anyone else. God doesn't work like that. He works like that. But here's the problem, right? The problem is ultimately we have to contend with the fact that whether you are black or white or brown or bright pink like me sometimes, or you know, rich or poor or male or female, a Republican or a Democrat or fascist or Marxist or Anglican or Presbyterian or Pentecostal, Reformed or Catholic or Protestant or whatever nationality, whatever news station, whatever social media group, whatever club you're part of, Jesus does not and will not ever fully choose to fit inside of your box. He does not fit into our nice, neat, worldly boxes. He did not fit into John's box, even though John's described as the the greatest of all men, and he probably won't fit into mine. In fact, the only box that God has ever chosen to really fit himself into at all is, is right here. It's this, because this is his love letter to us. This is his description for us to understand something of who he is, of what he's like, and what he's about. Every other box that we can create will always fall short of this. And it's not even just John, by the way. I mean, Jesus says it of the whole culture of the time. He said, what do I say about this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus is basically saying is, you were looking for a Messiah. You saw John, and you were like, nah, that doesn't fit in my box. He's way, way too grumpy. Like, he's way too angry. We don't want a God who's, like, grumpy and angry, so John's not right. And then Jesus comes along, And you say of him, oh, but he's like partying. He drinks alcohol. He hangs out with sinners. That doesn't fit in our box. He can't be like that. How easy is it for us to create a box in which we put God and feel very comfortable and very self-righteous because we know and we think we know what he's like. When in fact, what's really happening is that we're creating a Jesus that we want 
not actually ever taking time to get to know the Jesus who he really is. It's so easy, isn't it? You know, we, we see Jesus, or I do, I see him through my lenses, my view, my vision, my perspective, my culture, my family, my upbringing, the kind of person who I think he should be. And then what I do is I take him, I solidify him, I say this is who he is, and then I make sure that anybody who has a different view is just wrong. They're just wrong. They just don't fully understand it. They don't get it right. They don't pray right. They don't sound right. They don't worship right. And we judge them because we're right and everyone else is wrong. Now, I'll let you into a secret. Don't tell anyone. It's okay. This is not being recorded much. Um, <laughs> sometimes when people come to Vintage for the first time, they'll say, hey, pastor, can we take you out for coffee? And, I, and I'm always like, yes, let's go for coffee. And then I realized sort of five minutes into a nice chat with people that actually I'm not sort of telling them about Vintage or finding out about them. What I realize is that they're actually interviewing me and that I am uh, sitting inside a very, very formal interview structure where people want to know exactly what Vintage believes, who we are, where we came from, and whether or not, basically, we're prepared to pass their test of their correct view of God. And it's always interesting, those conversations, because you'll be pleased to know, outwardly, I always smile. I always smile. <laughs> Inwardly, I'm going, hey, you know what? I don't think you need a pastor. I don't think you need a pastor. I think you need a mirror. <laughs> I think you need a recorder because I think you've already figured it all out. I think you just need somebody who's going to tell you that you're right. When actually what Jesus always invites us to is into this greater unfolding revelation of who he actually is, not who we'd like him to be. You see, we live in this radically individualistic world, don't we? Where all the time we put ourselves in a space and actually because of cookies and algorithms and things like that, we're just always encouraged that we must have been right and then we're fed more of the things that we always believed, right? That's kind of how it works. When in fact to know Jesus is to constantly live in a space of revelation, to know there is so much more, so much more than we have yet to understand. Jesus is bigger than any box you could put him in. Why? Because he is God. He says, I am who I am. You don't define me. I define you. So what do we do? How do we live, if you want to, a better story than that? Well, here's a few thoughts maybe that could help. The first is I want to encourage you this. Fix your eyes on the person of Jesus. Fix your eyes on the person of Jesus. Um, a man, man once said to a pastor that he would be really happy to believe in Christianity if the pastor could just give him a watertight argument for its truth. The pastor replied, well, what if God hasn't given us a watertight argument, but rather he's given us a watertight person? Let me ask you a question. Why do you think Jesus lived? Why do you think Jesus lived? It's a trick, if you're now really confused. It is a trick. In church, we talk a lot about why Jesus was born. We talk a lot about why Jesus died. We talk a lot, a lot about why Jesus rose again. But why did Jesus spend all those years teaching and speaking and doing things on the planet? If it was just like this mechanical process, Surely he could have like made it a lot easier and just got on with those key bits. 
But yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them are jam-packed with these eyewitness accounts of what Jesus had to say. Like, why? Well, that's a really complicated question, but here's something we definitely know. is because God had some things he wanted us to know about himself. It's because Jesus had some things that he wanted us to understand about his nature, about his character, about the things that he actually really deeply cares about and the things that he has very, very strong views around. Now, he did not just like born, died, rose again. He wanted us to know who he is. That's why, by the way, we're in the process of going through the book of Luke, literally verse by verse. I think it might take us another decade. I'm not sure. At this rate, you're going to have to stick around if you want to get to the end. could take us a while. But we're doing it for a really specific reason. It's because if Jesus has one word to say for my life, boy, do I want to hear it. Boy, do I want to know him better. That's why we are always here at Vintage very passionate about the word of God, his truth, his description, his character unpacked for us so that we can understand him. The other parts of Jesus' life do matter, though. The reason we fix our eyes on Jesus is not just his life. It, it is his birth, the incarnation of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate in like 60 days' time here in this church. And pick, picture this. Lights are off. The candles are lit. The music is beautiful. And you're going to bring all your friends, and they're going to hear about Jesus. That's what we're doing this Christmas, by the way. You get to come. But this Christmas, what we're really going to be talking about is the incarnation. We're going to be talking about these words where it says, Emmanuel, God with us. The fact that Jesus came to earth is actually astonishing if you think about it. In no other religion would a God dare to come and inhabit on a, pl on a planet and live in the mess and the muck. But it's exactly why in Hebrews 12 it says that we should fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Because actually what, what it says about Jesus is that whatever you go through, whatever I go through, whatever messes, whatever pain, whatever anxiety, whatever depression, whatever doubts, fears, bullying, alienation, family products, even if we're a refugee, whatever status we find ourselves in, God went through that too. He went through it too, and he knows, and he understands, and there's nothing that you're going through that Jesus doesn't fully understand about. Why? Because he loves you, and he wants to say to you, and here I am, right with you, in the midst of the mess and the brokenness that you feel. We also look at the life of Jesus because we look at his death and his resurrection. Hebrews 12 carries on, and it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, Tim Keller said, if we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still don't actually know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. The answer can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Church, that the cross of Jesus Christ, which we fix our lives around, tells us about a God who would go to any and every length to be with you, 
to forgive you, to have a relationship with you, to heal you, to be alongside you. That is what the cross of Jesus Christ tells us. But it isn't the end because, of course, three days later, Jesus did rise. And the resurrection also tells us something because the fact that Jesus conquered death tells us that actually death, brokenness, sin, the fall, all the mess that we face today isn't the end of the story. You know, I want to be clear because I, I want you to hear what I'm not, don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that every rubbish thing that happens in your life Every bit of brokenness, every disease is God somehow working a different plan out and putting you through the ringer. I'm not saying that. But actually what I am saying is that the promise is ultimately an eternal one. It's a forever one. It says that in the end, all will be well. Which means that if right now in your life, it's not well, really what it means is this, it's not the end yet. The promise of the resurrection is that death couldn't hold Jesus, which means that if you give your life to Jesus, death won't hold you either. That when your body does finally give up on you, you will get a new body. You will get a new start. You will get to live in a new kingdom. We call it heaven sometimes in church, and it lasts for eternity. And in heaven, there's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more sickness. There's no more doubt. There's no more question. There's no more fear because the full order of the new kingdom has come. And right now, we do live in the mess of it. Right now, we are in the midst of the brokenness and sometimes just rubbish, terrible, nasty things happen because of evil and people's decisions. But yet, the future is a future of healing and hope and new life. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your life upon Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Secondly, though, do come to Jesus with your doubts. You know, I think, I think, as I said at the beginning, sometimes as Christians, we can be so well preconditioned to give the right answer. And even that can go into our prayer life too. Like when we come before God, we sort of feel obliged to say that everything's fantastic. John doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. We don't have to do that. We're invited to actually come with our doubts, with our frustration, with our anger sometimes, and actually bring it before the Lord. John is pretty angry with Jesus. Yet Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't get angry with him. He doesn't send him away. In fact, he's infinitely patient. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely kind. And he says to John, it's okay. I am with you. So come to Jesus with your doubts. And then, and then thirdly, know this. And I say this really carefully, and I feel like this could get tweeted wrong. And so please give me some grace as I say this. If you want to give your life to Jesus, if you want to follow him, what it's going to mean is this. You have to realize that you will never fully fit in another box. You will never fit in another box quite what I mean is this. You know, I, I, I have lots of boxes in my life. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a man, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a pastor, I'm English, I'm this, I'm that, I like this sports team. What, you know, whatever they are, we all have them, right? These little, little boxes that we put together. But the problem is, is that if we make any of those boxes our real identity, our real citizenship, 
and we put Jesus somewhere down the list. And what happens is this, is that we define what is true, we define what is real, and we define how we see the world by the box that we fit in. You know, like I love Liverpool Football Club. They're not doing very well right now. I could allow that to shape my reality. I'd be very depressed and unhappy, to be honest, if I did that. But the invitation of Jesus is to put him first, is to put his reality, to put his citizenship, put his kingdom first, and then let every other reality shape out from then. Because if not, if the full reality is the fact that I am this and then I'm a Christian, then actually maybe I am a Christian, maybe I'm not, but I certainly don't have the full picture. I have part of the story. We are invited to put Jesus first and realize that every other story, every other narrative, every other thing that we think we are, every other thing that we think defines us should flow from the first primary truth, which is that we are children of God, that he loves us, that he knows us, that he is with us, that he has a hope for the future, that your past is forgiven, that your presents are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that your futures are assured in Jesus Christ. That is what it means to follow Jesus. And everything else lives or dies from that reality. Tom Wright, the theologian, says, Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom comes from the heavenly realms, but it designs to take effect on earth and through everything that we are. So I'd love us to respond this morning, and I want to pray for a couple of different groups of people. Because here's what I know. I know that Jesus has transformed my life. And even though there is so much I don't know yet, even though there is so much that I need to get my head around, even though I will probably never even get a millionth of the way there before I get to heaven, that Jesus wants to continually reveal himself to me and he wants to reveal himself to you. What I know is that God has wonderful plans for my future and what I know is that God has wonderful plans for your future too. And I know at the heart of it, Jesus says this in Revelation 3. He says to all of us, Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I know that Jesus won't open that door, but I know that I can. And I know that you can. And so, hey, maybe this morning, maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church, in which case, hey, welcome to church. (laughs) It's great to have you. Maybe you have never made that conscious decision to give your life to Jesus. That if you're honest, your life is defined by many different boxes, but Jesus is not anywhere near the number one thing in who you are. In which case, in a moment, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. And if you want to, and you're under no obligation to, but I'm just going to invite you to pray that prayer along with me. And that is a decision that we make to make Jesus first, to become a Christian, to have our sins and our brokenness and every other reality forgiven and set aside and to find a new reality in Christ. Maybe this morning you'd like to take that opportunity. But maybe for others of us, we would say, yeah, we call ourselves Christians. We think Jesus is important. We think that sins need forgiving. We think that heaven's a reality. We think Jesus was the savior of the world. But if we're truthful, if we're honest, there is at least one other reality, which is the one that's defining us. 
There is one other story. There's one other narrative. There's one other box which is defining you. And because it's defining you, you know that it actually really obscures your vision of Jesus. And if that's you, then I'm just going to, again, pray a prayer. And I'm going to invite you to pray it along with me. And um, just with all of our eyes closed, I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, come, come and reveal Jesus afresh to us this morning. Not the Jesus we'd like you to be, not the Jesus we think you are, but the Jesus that you actually are. And so with all our eyes closed, if this morning you'd like to give your life to Jesus for the first time or even for the hundredth time, why not pray this along with me? Jesus, I am sorry for all the things that have separated me from you. I'm sorry for all the boxes that I've put you in, for all the judgments that I've made on everyone else. This morning, I want to invite you to be in charge of my life, to be the number one reality by which I live from. Would you come into my life and bring new life to me this morning? Thank you, Jesus.